This podcast is part of the Paris Fintech Forum Communities Programme and is brought to you with the support of BPI France. You're listening to the Fintech Podcast, the show that goes deep into the stories, the successes and failures that went into creating some of the world's most fantastic fintechs. And in this episode, how former chess prodigy Tamaz Gyorgadze survived civil war and hyperinflation to found Raisin, Europe's leading platform for savings and investments, despite a rocky start. It was a nightmare. We had to, at the beginning, realize that the business model we envisaged just would not work uh, on the regulatory side, though legally it would work. But, uh, but uh, after some discussions with, with uh, the regulators, uh, uh, in written form, we realized actually there is uh, uh, there is no way to progress with the original business model. Then we changed the business model. Then uh, to build up a marketplace, it's it's quite complex. What, what was the original? What was the original business so model? So the though? like uh, the deposit uh, brokerage, but on a global scale. Tamas Giorgadze, co-founder and CEO of Raisin. Thanks so much for joining me on the FNTech podcast. Thank you, Elliot, for inviting. And uh, it's a pretty good time to be uh, doing this interview because you had some uh, major news, both about Raisin and the future of the company. Why don't you tell us about the recent news and uh, about the company in general? Sure. So we uh, announced just uh, uh, almost two weeks ago now that uh, we uh, have merged with uh, Deposit Solutions. Uh, So another marketplace company uh, built uh, and uh, crafted in uh, Germany. uh, And uh, the combined company has also very clear focus on the business model of uh, marketplace services uh, in a particular area, which is uh, savings uh, uh, and investments. Uh, So we uh, both are complementary in our strengths. In total, the company uh, provides access to uh, deposits from 170 banks all across Europe. Um, And this we offer uh, directly through our B2C services, uh, like uh, Weltspan brand in Germany or Zinspilot, Save Better in the US. and also in a B2B setting, meaning that we run uh, marketplaces for third parties and provide an API service there as a white label uh, service. This we do uh, for Deutsche Bank, for example, or Hamburger Sparkasse, or AJ Bells, or Aviva, or N26, so that uh, uh, we uh, uh, run uh, both business models in parallel. We're present in 32 countries, uh, including uh, the US, the UK, Switzerland, and all of the European Union, uh, EEA. Uh, and uh, on top of this, uh, we uh, own a service bank uh, called Raisin Bank, uh, headquartered in Frankfurt, and also provide services in uh, investment areas. So we provide clients access to ETF portfolios and ETF-based pension products. Wow, that's uh, quite a lot of things. But uh, this this merger, I mean, th- what's the idea behind it? To build a kind of German fintech champion capable of taking on the world? What's the rationale behind it and uh, does this count as an exit for for raisin investors for for the other companies investors so uh, the major rationale is actually to build a better product and a better service uh, for our partners and for our customers so what do I mean by this of course the marketplace is as good as the offers and the partners uh, present on that one so by dramatically increasing the access uh, to uh, our product providers or deposit taking banks uh, through the combination and also to our distribution partners or point-of-sale partners or who provide then themselves third-party 
uh, deposit products, we uh, enhance the business model a lot. So the product becomes more attractive for the end consumer and uh, for both types of, uh, of bank uh, partnerships, uh, which allows us a better scaling, uh, which allows us uh, also a more targeted investment in our foreign expansions. Uh, we are, uh, uh, with this combination, I think, a European fintech champion, which we are proud of that it's built in Germany, but it's uh, our home is actually Europe, and we want to have a, a really serious take on our US expansion now uh, by bundling our forces and, and combining the investments we're doing there. I suppose it also helps that now uh, neither Deposit Solutions nor yourselves have, you've kind of both taken out a major competitor, so that should also help in terms of margins, uh, one would imagine. I would uh, like give you a different uh, element of it because uh, I think uh, competition is always healthy and uh, we, we both combined are still a very minor uh, percentage share of the huge deposit market. So in that regard, uh, uh, like uh, uh, fintech-wise, we, uh, we might be relevant in terms of the deposit market. We're a very, very small uh, player. Uh, just to give you a, uh, um, a feeling on uh, what our energy and resources were uh, invested on it was of course running a lot of competitive RFPs against uh, each other which took ages and ages because partners tried also to understand in detail what is the difference uh, at the same time uh, uh, in many areas there was almost no difference because we try to achieve feature parity on both sides uh, at a very high effort uh, so that uh, at the end we're converging in terms of uh, the product uh, uh, and also the partner uh, breadth while investing a lot actually in the same areas and investing a lot into uh, a number of competitive pitches with uh, large partners. Uh, by this, we just uh, increased uh, the uh, timeline which they needed for decision. So the decision was still the same to do this, uh, but it took uh, six months or nine months or 12 months until the decision instead of uh, doing the right thing uh, from the start on. So we, uh, like, I think by this move, we're simplifying our own life, but we're also simplifying uh, the life of uh, our partners and our prospective partners. Okay. Now, um, of course, for much of the last year, um, those people that could were saving and investing. And we saw part evidence of that in uh, the stock market, obviously shooting up. Uh, of course, this because lockdowns meant they couldn't go and spend their money on anything else. Um, is it fair to say uh, that uh, Raisin had a, a pretty good pandemic? Uh, so I think uh, like there are uh, in our business model, there are also actually all competing macro effects, which you <laughs> could imagine are there. So on the one side, of course, people are putting more money aside because they uh, cannot actually really spend it. Uh, they were also conservative in terms of like their future planning and uh, and uncertainty. <laughs> on the other side, uh, uh, what is, of course, not helpful is the record low rates. So in that regard, uh, the rates have gone down further. So if you compare a uh, a TAM deposit or an easy access product in uh, in the Eurozone, uh, which uh, right now delivers uh, like 15 basis points uh, uh, on our platforms at best, uh, that's compared to a current account, which in the past times delivered zero, the uh, like comparative attractiveness of that uh, has, uh, uh, has decreased. Uh, so uh, at the same time, we live in an even more complex world where a lot of incumbent banks are introducing negative rates. So it's not against a current account at zero, but it's against a current account at minus 50 if you have more than 50k on your account or 20k so that for part of the savers that's a very relevant question how to avoid the negative rates so i think the equation is a bit more complex uh, in terms of yes there is more money coming into uh, the uh, bank balance sheets at the same time uh, the uh, of course the uh, rates are 
near zero and uh, after inflation they are negative so it's not good for our consumers on the same uh, at the same time so uh, there are a lot of overlapping effects in there and now we hope we're emerging from the pandemic or at least things are opening up again largely across europe is it kind of have things flipped in the sense that people are now spending rather than saving but as a result of higher inflation uh rates are you know perhaps beginning to rise in in money markets and perhaps for the future and that will be kind of a good thing so almost the, the exact opposite effect i think we're at a very early stage of this so what we see is actually um uh, like on uh, uh, sovereign bond yields, a slight increase of 20, 30 basis points, but rather on a very long duration, so on a 10 year plus, not on uh, um, like mid durations of one to three years, which are, of course, product wise more relevant for us and, and our customers. And we see a bit of uh, uh, like uh, uh, business coming back uh, in uh, consumer finance, uh, in factoring business, so in some, in some parts of, uh, of the financing of the real economy so it's early signs they're encouraging still we are uh, like uh, in a situation where on the one side uh, uh, consumers uh, still put away a lot of money from their income uh, on the savings account so in germany we had a record 23 percent net savings rate so uh, it's uh, 10 percentage points more than normal uh, uh, levels uh, and at the end uh, actually sovereigns have been lending both uh, 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 like uh, directly and indirectly pumping a lot of uh, money into into the economy and also substituting uh, private credit uh, in that regard. So uh, we are, I think, at an early stage of a recovery, which we uh, kind of see first encouraging signs on the balance sheets as well. So overall, I mean, during the pandemic, in terms of people saving more, is, is Europe becoming more German uh, in terms of putting more money aside and being more conservative in their outlooks? Uh, I think yes, to uh, certain parts of the Germans are becoming less Germans because I think uh, there was a big uh, rush towards uh, investment accounts from a very, very conservative uh, behavior before. And we've seen this uh, like uh, also helping fellow startups like uh, Trade Republic and Scalable Capital raise very large rounds and, and gather a lot of customers. At the same time, we really see that in the Netherlands and Spain, we see a lot more customer uh, inflows and, and new customer registrations or openings because uh, for them uh, actually the product has become just more relevant uh, and uh, domestic banks are offering less and less. Also in some markets like Spain or Italy where it was normal that you would get ev- uh, like abnormally high uh, savings rate for a couple of months or for a certain amount as a hook on the current account product, that uh, variation has also vanished because there is just no interest for banks to attract uh, additional funding for incumbent banks with with a lot of current account uh, balances. So in that regard, we see there a shift in the market, uh, Germany becoming less German and uh, our fellow Europeans becoming more German. So net net, same same amount of Germanness perhaps overall. Uh, but look, uh, you, it's, it's interesting now that we're speaking at this time where obviously it's not the end of the Raisin journey, but it's a, a significant milestone that we've had with this merger. Uh, but of course, you founded the company, I think in 2013, in Germany, but you're actually from Georgia, as your name would suggest. What was it like growing up there? Presumably, this was before the breakup of the Soviet Union. Yes, so um, I, uh, I've, uh, I'm, I'm like, uh, was born in 1978. So uh, it's actually towards the end of the Soviet Union. But uh, my uh, family and uh, my uh, deceased father was very engaged. So he took me to all types of demonstrations, uh, like. Uh, uh, 
against the communism or for the uh, for the uh, independence. So I remember that very uh, vividly, uh, and uh, uh, and also this time of insecurity has. Uh, probably had, had some influence on my preferences so on one side uh, also uh, like uh, liking security and liking the product uh, space we're in it's a very german thing but at the same time the germans have a specific history with inflation and uncertainty in the 20th century so uh, that that was one thing on the other thing on a personal level i think i have a high tolerance uh, for insecurity uh, so that in that regard i'm I'm like uh, I'm okay uh, in a volatile environment, uh, and uh, uh, so it doesn't make me too nervous on a personal level. On a long-term level, I'm I'm craving for for security as well. On a short-term level, I'm I'm okay with volatility and uncertainty. So uh, that's uh, that's helped probably. And when you were on these demonstrations, did did, did your father get arrested? Did you uh, have issues with uh, the um, you know security forces? No, not really. So I think uh, we we were all fine, uh, and uh, also he wouldn't have uh, taken me if if uh, if there were like uh, really uh, physical violence uh, danger in that regard. So um, uh, I uh, what uh, what was though the case is of course uh, on on the one side uh, we uh, lived through I think two currency changes and happy inflations, where all the savings of the family were were like uh, erased and vanished. Uh, uh, 1990 and then again 1992. So uh, in that regard, uh, it had a direct influence uh, on uh, on our family's well-being. Uh, and uh, I was very young when I graduated, so I was uh, like 12 when I finished my secondary school and 15 when I had my uh, uh, master's uh, title. Uh, and uh, started working very early back then in Georgia for a salary. I think it was uh, seven or eight dollars. So uh, per, in, in per hour. Early, no per per month uh, so month. Uh, so uh, uh, yeah so uh, in this type of situation so and also like uh, uh, after one civil war and uh, in uh, in another secession war uh, yeah and then 95 i went to germany uh, for a phd and then uh, and then actually started at mckinsey in consulting something completely new i had no clue right. of what what a consulting is doing well you've kind of rushed through uh, like the largest part of your life there i just want to go back cuz just to in case anybody missed it, you finished school age 12. You graduated, I think, with a master's at aged 15. Uh, you, you were a bit of a, a child prodigy. Were, were you a kind of a, a maths genius? What, what was your deal? Yeah, so that's long ago. So actually, I, I, like, I, I, I liked maths a lot. So that was my uh, key strength, I think. And then physics and like everything which is connected to maths, more or less. Um, uh, and... Uh, uh, yes, so I think I started playing chess very young, so I was uh, four and a half, and uh, my uncle is a chess grandmaster, so we had a bit of a family passion. Also, my, my father and my aunt all played uh, quite okay, so not, not great, but, uh, but okay. So in that regard, there was some family interest, and then, and then I started playing. I played uh, in tournaments at five and six, uh, and, uh, and, then, uh, and then progressed in the school quite fast because like uh, playing chess also enhances like logical ability ability to uh, also like uh, a bit of basic math so in that regard uh, that helped in, in as you were excelling in your studies and also chess i mean how, how influenced were you by by your family was it a particularly uh, uh, well-to-do environment so one assumes that uh, under communism at the time that uh, everyone was you know just uh, getting by uh, yes, so actually the family influenced me uh, very much in that regard because my uh, uh, grandmom uh, raised the, her kids alone, so three of them, so uh, 
uh, and uh, uh, and all of them uh, like made through their own efforts and through education uh, uh, made it to something. So, as mentioned, my my uncle became a chess grandmaster and uh, was training Karpov also in the later years. Uh, also, my dad uh, had uh, the uh, best diploma actually in uh, in our hometown. So, uh, in that regard, they were like what their own experience has shown them is actually education can bring you out of poverty which had an influence of, on me as well of course so uh, I was quite focused on uh, on studying and, and uh, doing uh, good at school and also then later at education and also like uh, in the professional career And what prompted you was it a time when everybody who could was, was leaving Georgia what prompted you to leave was it just seeking a better life and that couldn't be had in Georgia at the time? Actually, I think there was another thing. I was very young, so I uh, started uh, like uh, a proper job when I was 15 uh, uh, and, and then uh, worked for a year. And then I realized that it might be too early, like uh, based on whatever interests, uh, maturity, uh, like uh, social interaction, a need and need to uh, need to progress there. So uh, uh, I think I was quite good in what I was doing back then, but at the end uh, it was way too early. So that uh, the um, idea was to do a PhD or, or like another study uh, in between. And uh, uh, and of course, like I mean, uh, almost everyone was leaving who could leave at, at that stage of the life and, and try to build up education and uh, and, uh, and experience somewhere else. So um, uh, that has influenced my decision back then. Uh, the like decision to go for Germany was uh, I didn't speak German, so uh, I thought like at that age you would uh, learn another language. So that was a nice gimmick on it, uh, and uh, I uh, kind of learned German. And people tell me now my English is German, so in that regard I, I learned it quite quite okay, well, uh, and uh, uh, and spent then my next years then doing PhD in Germany. And, you know, you said you did your PhD. I think you've got, you've got two PhDs, haven't you now? Yes, I've, I've done then one in Carroll also in, in Georgia back then, yes. <laughs> right, so we'll call you Dr. Doctor, uh, Tomaz. But, I mean, when you finished your studies, you, you went straight to McKinsey. Uh, what were you doing there, and at what point did you get the inspiration for Raisin? So um, I've, uh, uh, I've done a study in something which didn't interest me at all. So it was uh, uh, automotive. And uh, I have to confess, I do not have even a driver's license uh, by now. So uh, like uh, that was completely at odds with my interest. Or, uh, so, and then uh, I decided to do something which you can understand like with, uh, with a generalist background as well. Uh, and uh, because I studied macro before, so also... Uh, I started uh, then working uh, in the banking and insurance sector at, at McKinsey. I stayed there 10 years in total, and that was actually also a prelude to uh, to uh, our um, uh, startup uh, uh, because uh, the last three years I was, uh, 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 as a partner, also responsible for a so-called uh, deposit and uh, personal investing uh, uh, knowledge uh, for the EMEA region. and. Uh, started doing that uh, actually during 2008 crisis so well all universal banks wanted to shift their funding from wholesale to retail and to attract depositors and start direct banks so it uh, coincided uh, a lot with uh, my efforts uh, in there and then uh, uh, like out of out of this efforts interest and uh, knowledge of the space actually also the idea emerged and was there a, like a, a mission? Was there a plan? Was it to encourage more people to save? Was it just to make saving easier? Was it to help people have the security that you didn't have when you were growing up? Was there something bigger than just setting up your own fintech because that's something you were working on at McKinsey? 
Yes, yes. So originally, I think like Raisin had, had a lot of uh, its branding and naming history. So uh, uh, originally, the company was called Saving Global, and the uh, original idea back then was actually to uh, act as a type of a um, uh, uh, channel for uh, for funding to arrive into uh, poorer and more emerging markets. Uh, into their balance sheets and to, to circumvent actually the typical brokers. So who are the typical brokers? It's uh, uh, like uh, uh, banks uh, from more developed countries or develop, uh, development banks who intermediate and take quite quite some margin uh, in between. And then, uh, and then it comes on banks' balance sheets and then into bank lending so that when uh, the same foreign currency uh, uh, deposits, uh, uh, which is sourced actually at a very low amount in, in, a, in a developed country, Lends being uh, ends being uh, uh, given out at credits at uh, double-digit rates uh, uh, in, in foreign currency. So that was actually the initial observation, saying, look, the markets are not homogeneous. There, there is no direct access to the large pools of savings from across the world. So our first banks, we had discussions and also term sheets with. Uh, we are in Chile, in Australia, in South Africa, in Kazakhstan, in Georgia as well. So that we wanted to create type of a global intermediation platform for, on the one side, large pools of savings, on the other side, actually the bank's balance sheets where the, that foreign currency is deployed into the real economy. Okay. And, and listening to other McKinsey alumni turned founders, it sounds like a place that almost encourages staff to go off and, and do their own thing. Uh, what, what is it about McKinsey that helps produce so many founders, whether it's in fintech or, or any other space? I think the one positive, so like to frame it positively, then uh, I think McKinsey encourages uh, you uh, also to progress once your learning curve is flattening. So I think when people notice that uh, they are not uh, they are not uh, becoming better actually and and progressing in what they're doing, they start to actively think about like what's next for me. Um, and uh, the other thing is, uh, uh, I think McKinsey gives also a very good. Uh, glimpse into the corporate world so many realize that's actually not the thing I want to be doing uh, uh, the next uh, five or ten years so that you start then thinking about other options and and what other ways to build something relevant but uh, to do it with a small team or uh, uh, on a much smaller scale but not to go into a corporate world which with all its security but also all its political disadvantages and uh, and complexity uh, to to change things. So uh, in that regard, I think it's it's a good breeding ground because you learn fast. But then when you realize you're not learning anymore, you start thinking actively and are pushed to that to st- think actively what's next. And then in terms of what's next, you have visibility of a couple of options, and some of them for me back then didn't didn't appear attractive. Okay. Uh, so look, we're going to come back to your story in just a moment, Tomas, so don't go away, because uh, I just need to remind our listeners that uh, this podcast is part of the Paris Fintech Forum Communities Programme for 2021. And in this special pandemic period, you can enjoy throughout the year top-level live sessions with key industry players, exclusive on-demand interviews such as this one, and use our innovative digital networking capabilities to meet your peers, develop your network, create new business opportunities, and continue to build together the future of the fin and tech industry. And you can find out more at www.parisfintechforum.com. And so, Tomas, you were telling us about the idea of uh, Raisin uh, when it came about. What was it like actually getting it off the ground? Was it something that was just natural and easy? Was it a complete nightmare? Was it somewhere in between? It was a nightmare. So it's uh, to uh, so I think like uh, you have also in this phase, of course, energy to 
to overcome anything, right? So because it's early, you are flexible. Uh, you you know where you are, so you are very honest to yourself. So uh, you are just at the very beginning. Uh, and uh, uh, we had to, at the beginning, realize that the business model we envisaged just would not work uh, on the regulatory side, though legally it would work. But uh, but uh, after some discussions with with uh, the regulators uh, uh, in written form, we realized actually there is uh, uh, there is no way to progress with the original business model. Then we changed the business model. Then uh, to build up a marketplace, it's it's quite complex. What, what was the original? What was the original business so model? So the that? like uh, the deposit uh, brokerage, but on a global scale. So not uh, not limited to. Uh, to EU-wide or EEA-wide uh, form as we have it, or local like we have it in the UK or the US, but uh, to do a global platform. So that's uh, uh, then uh, while we uh, like change the business model, then to attract the first bank uh, with actually a very a very early business model, no real validation. I mean, what makes uh, marketplaces attractive uh, for large partners and banks is of course the existing customer base and the volumes flowing through that. But if it's uh, both zero, then uh, you need good arguments and persuasion to uh, to come to that outcome. Uh, then you have one uh, like a partner, and then that partner asks you, okay, it was intended to be a marketplace. Like, wh- which date is the next one going live? And then it took us three or four months. So uh, it was uh, nerve-wracking and, and also like uh, complex to... to uh, uh, bring partners live at that very early stage where we had like very little uh, to to offer on both sides so uh, uh, also for the customers but but especially for the partners yeah i suppose with a platform company it's uh, very much a chicken and egg situation you know without the uh, without the customers the partners don't want to come on board and without the partners the customers aren't interested either because there's nothing for them to uh, to shop for uh, but i mean uh, was getting investors also tricky because you seem to have got a pretty uh, illustrious list of investors, Goldman Sachs, PayPal, Index Ventures, at least up until this time when we're speaking now. Was it easy to get investors of that caliber on board? Was it quite hard to raise funds in the beginning? Um, so at the very beginning, so I think there we were lucky, to be honest, because uh, in that area, the McKinsey Network helped in terms of our uh, seed investors or very like initial investors. And those were mainly uh, like friends and colleagues uh, from, from McKinsey or clients. Uh, so that uh, those were people who could uh, put uh, like uh, a minor share of their uh, savings into, into the business and were comfortable because they knew the team. Some of them have worked with us for, for a couple of years, so they had the confidence that the team is good, and that's the only thing you have at the beginning, right? So, uh, like, uh, the legal opinion and, and the first mock-up do not matter uh, six months later, but uh, but actually the team matters. So, uh, that helped. And then, uh, uh, while we managed actually to launch, we were lucky that uh, Index approached us while we were still, uh, like, hammering out our first pitch presentation. And even without a proper pitch, we... Uh, so uh, actually Neil invited uh, myself to Geneva and then we, uh, uh, Michael, Frank and myself flew over to London uh, for a, uh, a pitch presentation in front of the partners and that went well. And we had uh, like uh, a term sheet from uh, on the same day in the evening uh, from Index. So we, we, we like uh, the first round was very easy, quote unquote. Uh, we, uh, we imagined it to be much harder. Uh, so and then uh, of course that helped then later on because uh, index were uh, like good friends with Ribbit uh, 
from California and uh, the ribbits like approached us then later themselves but it was of course good to have uh, to have investors in the cap table who knew each other from from other investments like like wealthfront or, or I think uh, also Revolut and, and some other so in that regard the the teams worked together before and uh, uh, and uh, yeah and then uh, so the fundraisers were never the uh, like most complex part of this, uh, but uh, but uh, were comparatively easy. Yes. So curious to know what the most complex parts were, because I guess founding a fintech is hard. Although you say that it was relatively easy, in, at least uh, in terms of the uh, first uh, financing rounds. But running a fintech and making it successful is a much harder uh, ask. Tell me about some of the challenges or setbacks you faced. Uh, along the way some of the things that perhaps were were less easy than you had envisaged or were just downright you know almost impossible oh there are many things so like i started with building marketplaces and each and every of them like uh, not only the german one but then uh, later on uh, the uk one so when you start like building marketplaces you always fa- face chicken and, and, and egg problem the other one is like we went uh, uh, very early out uh, on our international expansion and uh, we uh, realized later that we like technically understood how to build the platform, but we didn't understand the domestic markets at all. Also, the market dynamics, the uh, like relative attractiveness of the product. So we've run it all centrally and believed that if we build the product, then the customer will come. And it turned out it's it's not the case. So like uh, it's uh, in many cases it's it it doesn't work out like that. Uh, then uh, initially, also when we launched. We built out uh, a product which was fast to build and uh, and and to launch, but then later realized actually banks have a lot more uh, demand around the product. So in terms of some of them want to have a good ledger for interest rate calculations, some of them want specific reports for their countries. So a lot of stuff to fudge and build on top of it, which makes the platforms then very complex. And then B two C and running B two C and B two B models in parallel that also makes it even more complex. So that uh, actually the complexity grew over time. Though the initial model and initial uh, tech stack which we had was like completely fine for uh, for uh, achieving the initial objectives, it it became a constraint later when uh, when actually the business model became more complex and more multidimensional. So all of those things, uh, I think one like a very important one uh, which we also underestimated was uh, building a great team uh, because uh, when you are early you are like really happy about uh, the next employee signing the contract uh, and uh, because you are still like thinking in retrospect very much you do not really think like which roles and which uh, which like rock stars you need one year down the road you are hiring actually to solve the past problems but not the future problems and you're always running behind on uh, on uh, uh, on the uh, profiles, both number of them, but also the skill set. Uh, so uh, that was something we needed, I think, like two or three years to realize. Uh, but yeah, so it's n- nothing unsurmountable, but I think like every founder will tell you more or less uh, uh, like similar stories about those. And you had and you still continue to have operations in the UK. What impact, if any, did Brexit have on Reason? So we decided actually to go uh, into the UK um, after the Brexit vote. So um, and uh, we designed it the way that it was like fully uh, autonomous and uh, and uh, own license only domestic banks. So in that regard, I think uh, we decided consciously to do it uh, in an environment where it was clear there will be little synergies to our, our core business in Europe in terms of the like uh, platform participants, uh, not in terms of technology, but in terms of platform participants. So that uh, the Brexit 
its effect on our business was limited in terms of it was built for a standalone uh, a UK uh, case. Uh, on the other side, I mean, we had to learn also a lot because uh, before we had a very uh, clear component, which was we were bringing new banks to the market and enriching the market in terms of uh, uh, allowing cross-border banks to operate in, in Germany, in Spain, in the Netherlands. And in the UK, it's actually all domestic or domestically licensed banks. Uh, and there, some of them were already on the market, right? So we are more a channel than than some like someone giving access to a completely new a uh, new market or, or, or new language or new new customer type. So uh, that's a bit of a shift in the business model and uh, and uh, uh, and uh, like also thinking about our commercial value add. And I understand, uh, and I'll try and phrase this as accurately as I can. Some of your customers had funds in the now defunct Greensill Bank, which was part of the failed supply chain finance firm Greensill Capital. Uh, I know your customers haven't lost any money, so that's clear and out there. As a result of that, but it must have been a pretty stressful time for Raisin to, you know, be associated in some capacity with this institution. Yes, definitely. So, like our private customers uh, have uh, have uh, received their money back. So that's that's completely true. Uh, at the same time, of course, it's uh, it's nothing uh, uh, good for the platform in terms of uh, uh, to have a participant which which fails uh, for. Uh, uh, some reasons I will come to those reasons. So in that regard, of course, uh, it's not. It was not a positive event for us. Uh, uh, and uh, um, uh, the uh, I think the events around Greensill are also quite interesting because uh, it seems to be that uh, some of the uh, like accounting and books were not uh, fully corresponding to the reality in terms of the exposures, in terms of the documentation of the uh, of the credits. Uh, uh, credit undertakings, uh, so that uh, judging on the public figures which they which they published and uh, which were audited, uh, uh, the banks seem to be very well capitalized uh, uh, and uh, uh, even had uh, a uh, positive EBIT in the last in the last reporting period. So uh, until the last day, a uh, uh, investment grade rating from uh, from Scope Rating, so from a local rating agency. Uh, and a coverage of uh, BDB, which is uh, the Association of German Banks, so that uh, from outside, as always, bank balance sheets are very hard to judge from outside. But in that case, uh, also, once again, it appeared that the bank is solid, and from one day to another, the uh, the whole drama uh, unfolded, and uh, and uh, there was a payment moratorium by BaFin, and then uh, the uh, like situation came 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 out uh, like uh, uh, piece by piece. Uh, also, with Credit Suisse decision in peril, also to pull the funds or uh, to stop uh, to stop marketing the uh, the funds to each cust- to, to, to to their customers. Um, I think, in terms of the retrospect or, or the learning, I think uh, one thing, unfortunately, we cannot do. We cannot be a better supervisor than the supervisor itself, because uh, that is not a role of a private company to say like this bank, though they are licensed and allowed to uh, to receive deposits from the public. Uh, should not be allowed uh, from us because we have a superior knowledge or we uh, we kind of have a feeling uh, on that one. Uh, I think at the same time, uh, we need to educate uh, the customers better. We took uh, some steps there. Uh, and also, I think uh, in terms of avoiding such cases, of course, strengthening of whistleblowing and better exchange of information. If some is there, uh, be it at, uh, at the a bank association or at uh, the deposit guarantee scheme uh, provider 
uh, or at the regulator would be welcome because then market participants can react earlier. Uh, overall, I think a very unfortunate event uh, of uh, of the insolvency and uh, and a uh, like uh, uh, something which uh, which we would love to have avoided. And from one fintech failure, I guess to another which had nothing at all to do with you except for the fact that it took place in Germany the whole wirecard scandal i'd be curious to know as uh, the you know one of the co-founders of what is now especially in your combined uh, entity uh, one of germany's leading fintechs if not the biggest in germany uh, what kind of effect did that have on the fintech ecosystem in germany and i suppose also the relationship with the regulator which of course was very much found to be wanting in this situation uh, so, Elit, I would uh, disagree with the basic framing of it because I think tho- those two situations are not fintech situations. Uh, why do I see this? Uh, both uh, of them had a fully licensed bank and were fully supervised uh, in all markets where they acted. Uh, none of them was uh, in any way involved in any like fintech activity. So I have never seen a single person from Wirecard in the fintech association or at uh, at fintech events. So those were really part of the establishment. This was a DAX company. Uh, majority of loans was coming from major banks, uh, German banks, but also non-German lenders. So in that regard, I cannot imagine a company more corporate than Wirecard. So I would, I would rather say it's, it's, it's not a typical fintech. And to make it to a fintech problem, I think, was also a bit of a political framing, to be honest, to say, like, look, we have a situation here. Uh, those guys had access to the highest echelons of, uh, of power in Germany. Uh, they were like going in and out with the largest banks and had uh, had coverage from their analysts and, and had credit there. And uh, once it fails, uh, it becomes a fintech uh, before it was a DAX <laughs> company and a powerhouse. So I think that's a bit unfair towards the fintech community because uh, they were not part of the fintech community. Like in terms of like is a fraud a uh, like a preeminent uh, case in, in, in fintech, I, wouldn't, I would not see that. Though I think a lot of fintech founders, myself included, are driven by an idea and willingness uh, to create a better product and to create a better access and democratize. I mean, we're offering our ETF portfolios at a fraction of cost of an active fund, but also at a fraction of cost of any robo-advisor by any major provider in Germany. So we want to give customers access to better products. Also, our marketplace products, of course, are very much geared towards the customers because customers can choose from hundreds of offers uh, on a single platform and they are given more power than before. Uh, So uh, I think uh, that's the main motivation. I think like there are black sheep everywhere in every cohort, in every uh, in every population, uh, and I would not see it that uh, Wirecard or Greensill is uh, like is any proof that the fintech is particularly prone on having those. Uh, I would say rather the opposite. Also, Lex Greensill was, uh, uh, to my knowledge, I never met I never met him. I have to admit, uh, but also very cl- close to politics. Uh, he's run uh, a bank, a fully licensed bank in Germany. So uh, very few fintechs uh, have uh, the uh, banks in their holding structure. Right. Okay. Well, it's good to uh, get that set straight, I suppose, for people outside of Germany in particular. You know, Wirecard was often seen as being a quote unquote fintech, but I suppose for someone who's there on the ground, you have a better sense of, uh, of, of where they stood in the, uh, in the grand scheme of things. Uh, while you're dealing with Raisin and uh, the merger that you uh, recently announced, you're also still a non-executive board member of the Bank of Georgia. Um, how does that how does that work? Does that take up a lot of your time? Does that is that just a way for you to kind of I don't know repay uh, something to your, the country of your birth? 
So I like I'm uh, uh, I'm very much bound uh, to to Georgia and I love the country I love the people so uh, my mom lives there my uh, like uh, a lot of my relatives live there so that I'm uh, like I'm personally uh, also uh, like we spend uh, at least one vacation as a family in Georgia so in that regard I'm I'm connected to Georgia a second thing is also like I knew uh, uh, management and uh, of both of the largest banks uh, TBC and Bank of Georgia from my McKinsey time so the professional uh, like uh, connection was there before and also like personal connection uh, the former CEO of uh, of uh, Bank of Georgia from a long time ago is actually our advisory board member Lado so uh, like there is connection on multiple levels and at some point in time when I left McKinsey actually Bank of Georgia asked whether I want to join them because uh, uh, I had like banking experience in the region uh, but also in uh, uh, in Europe and uh, had a local context and advised bank uh, banks locally uh, and it was a good fit because I like uh, the dynamic markets also and in terms of the banking product and uh, and uh, the uh, like product uh, maturity is very high so the like mobile banking applications uh, uh, what single sign-on features which the banks offer buy now pay later uh, products and so on so on are very progressed and matured so that uh, the market is really thrilling and uh, growing fast and there is really top talent uh, in uh, in those banks uh, so it's it's fun to work there it takes a bit of my time but but not too much it's effectively it's like uh, two days per quarter which are board meetings and committee meetings and then some of the remote support and, and workshops we're doing and off-sites so that's uh, the level of involvement but a lot of excitement well, okay, Tomas, I've just got one more question, which is the final question I ask everyone on the FinTech podcast, and that is this. Uh, what is the weirdest or craziest thing you've ever built or done in your life? Well, that's, that's a good one. So I think like uh, um, uh, one in professional and one in private. So I think in uh, professional life, uh, uh, I've been working for a very, very large Russian bank and running uh, branch transformation programs across this huge country so I think we had a team in Yakutia and Nizhny Novgorod and Samara and Voronezh and uh, I've gone to a lot of those places with a lot of adventures behind uh, so I was uh, arrested at an airport because uh, my associates uh, didn't ha- kind of have the uh, permit to uh, like reside in, in that sp- particular city so in Moscow actually we were going back and had to spend the night in the cell uh, before the like uh, main pitch towards this uh, like board of that uh, bank, so uh, and was like last minute taken out and on the plane. Uh, so uh, a lot of adventure around uh, this huge country with a lot of like day-to-day challenges. So that was exciting, crazy, uh, uh, a bit of uh, scary, uh, but uh, uh, but really fun. Uh, and uh, on the personal side, I think like. Uh, uh, the time I uh, uh, like remember cherish most was uh, uh, actually when I was young, uh, 11, 12, uh, 12 uh, I moved to Tbilisi from, from Kutaisi and uh, like I started going to the chess school and uh, that ended up to be in the middle of the fighting zone of the civil war back then. So from a like very civilized, normal country and so on, you had uh, out of a sudden people with Kalashnikovs running uh, in the streets. Uh, and, and then shooting at each other and uh, tanks uh, moving through the streets. So that was uh, like the craziest personal situation, which which like I think also had a lot of impact on me personally. Uh, but uh, so nothing is given more or less. Uh, that it was my uh, my learning back then. And you just carried on playing in the chess tournament while while 
Guns were firing and tanks were. Uh, yes, yeah, so shells. I continued going to the chess school because there was a very good, uh, like, uh, chess trainer. So and you cherish this. So and uh, 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 yeah, but uh, of course that uh, was. I mean, that was not like uh, I think like overly dangerous. Uh, there were not like bullets flying flying around you, but a lot of armed men going into the fighting zone, which was just like 100 or 200 meters away from there. Wow. Well. Uh Perhaps if uh, everyone just played chess instead of uh, shooting at each other, the world would be uh, the world would be a better place. But uh, definitely, <laughs> Tomas, I'm afraid we're out of time. But really appreciate your taking the time, especially when so much has been happening uh, with uh, with Raisin and, uh, of course, with the merger uh, announced with uh, Deposit Solutions. And congratulations uh, for that. And wishing you uh, in the new entity going forward uh, all the best of luck. And thank you so much for joining us on the FNTech podcast. Thanks a lot, Elliot, for for your time and the good questions. As a chess prodigy whose uncle trained former world champion Anatoly Karpov, you'd expect Tomas to be smart. But even so, gaining a master's aged 15, followed by two PhDs, is still pretty impressive. Achievements that no doubt came easier to him than co-founding Raisin, whose early days he described as a nightmare. Now a leading light of Germany's fintech scene, he's hell-bent on building a European champion, one that can help provide users with the financial security he lacked when he was growing up in Georgia. So thank you to Mazgiorgadze, and thank you for listening to the Fintech podcast with me, Elliot Gotkin, now part of the Paris Fintech Forum Communities Programme. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and you can get updates and listen to all previous episodes via the website, www.parisfintechforum.com. If you have any comments, suggestions, or feedback, you can find us on LinkedIn and on Twitter, at Paris Fin Forum or at Elliot Gotkin. That's it from me. Thanks again to BPI France for sponsoring this podcast. We'll be back again next week for more of the best F in tech. Hope you join us again then. Bye-bye.